evidence and answers. The hot topic we hear in today's news is socialism. What is it and is it a good thing? Is this what our country should be headed towards or away from? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers radio broadcast with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an international teacher, speaker, and author in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today on our broadcast, Pat and his guest, Dr. Jay Richards, will be exploring the topic of socialism in a fascinating interview entitled, Why Socialism Always Fails. Now, here's Pat. 20th century, it was definitely socialism. The United States was the leading critic and leading sort of advocate against socialism in the 20th century. And so part of it is a kind of anti-Americanism, just a dislike among young Americans for their country. But I think part of it is also just this basic confusion. They don't actually know what socialism is. And so when I hear young people talking about it, I say, okay, so do you think that the government should actually own everyone's houses, own everyone's cars, tell everybody what job they're going to do, own the Apple Corporation and dictate who's going to own iPhones and who's not going to do that, where you're going to live and how much you're going to pay. Nobody actually thinks that's a good idea. They don't want socialism applied to themselves as it really exists. What they're just picturing is a kind of a brotherhood of man in which people share and get along and everybody has enough. It's this kind of this utopian idea. The problem is that utopian idea has nothing to do with Socialism has actually been practiced, and it's actually worked its way out in the 20th century. And if anything, if what you really want is a system in which people in general have at least enough to get by and enough to prosper, well, that's free enterprise. That's the economic system in which people, you know, it's not perfect. It's not utopia. People are still fallen human beings. But there's a reason that people were willing to risk their lives to get into the United States. No one's willing to risk their lives to get into North Korea. In fact, people risk their lives to get out. I think that in some ways that sort of tells you everything you need to know. What countries are, are people trying to get out of and what countries are people trying to get into? That people tend to vote with their feet. And there's a reason that we have an immigration problem in the United States. Partly the borders are porous, but partly people just recognize it's going to probably be a much better life if you're living in the United States than in many countries where people don't enjoy the fruits of economic freedom. Now, we're hearing... Democratic socialism. What exactly do they mean by this? Well, and this is what a lot of American politicians, Congresswoman from New York, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and Bernie Sanders, they say, well, we're not socialists in the Marxist sense. We don't believe in violent revolution. We believe in democratic socialism, by which they mean we want to get to something like socialism, but we think we can get there by the ballot box just by people a majority of Americans voting for it, and then the government will slowly grow to kind of fill the private sector. Well, again, the idea is that democratic socialism is going to be more benign. It's going to be more peaceful. But if you want to look at the current best example of democratic socialism, just look at Venezuela. I mean, people forget that the socialists that are in charge in Venezuela, that government has been democratically elected every time. And so just because 51% of the population votes for socialism, it doesn't mean the effects of socialism are going to be any different. It might be sort of slower moving, so it takes a little bit longer for the disaster to set in. But Venezuela, the Venezuelans now are utterly desperate. They're eager to get out. They're surviving in many cases just by digging through the trash. It's a complete disaster. In fact, last year in Venezuela, I think that the inflation rate was over 10,000 
wow. in one year. That's what you get when you get democratic socialism. It's a lot slower, but in the long run, it's still socialism, and it's still going to have the bad effects that you should expect from socialism, however you got to it. Wow. You know, one of the themes I hear about proponents of socialism, you know, is all about fairness. Fairness. And one of the things, arguments I hear is that, well, 1% of the population own over 50% of the wealth here in the United States, and, and that's not fair. How would you address something like that? Well, of course, it depends on the details, but the, you notice that the verb actually that's used in the sentence determines in many ways the way we feel about it. So when you hear, you know, 1% of the population owns 50% of the wealth, that bothers us. Now, let me change the verb and say 1% of the population creates 50% of the wealth or manages 50% of the wealth. Notice how that really changes the situation. Yeah. I mean, the reality is some people's economic activity creates a lot of value. So maybe you don't like Bill Gates or you didn't like the late Steve Jobs or Jeff Bezos or whoever, but their actions have actually created wealth for millions and millions of people and not just for themselves. The late Steve Jobs, the uh, the founder and, and head of the Apple Corporation, he didn't get rich stealing iPhones from homeless people, obviously. He got rich because he created things of value to millions and millions of people. And so in a system in which people are freely able to buy and exchange goods and services, freely able to accept jobs, the income that people make, as long as it's legal, is generally going to represent the economic value of what they're contributing. And now we don't like that. Maybe we don't like the fact that, well, somebody, some people create more value economically than others. But what's the alternative? Well, the alternative is that we would take the wealth that's been created by some people who has done it well and confiscate it and give it to someone else who didn't create it. That's not justice. That's a very definition of injustice. It's also a terrible idea because the truth of the matter is that some people are better at investing and managing wealth than, than others. And so I think behind this, for a lot of people, when they hear this, there's this assumption that's actually false. It's called the zero-sum game myth. And the idea of the zero-sum game is that if one person has wealth, then they've taken it from someone else. So if Peter makes a dollar, Paul must have lost a dollar somewhere else. And if you think that, then that means if some person is richer than somebody else, well, they're causing that other person to have less money. But that's not how it works. In a real vibrant free economy, the total amount of wealth goes up over time. So it's possible that somebody could get fabulously wealthy, not by taking wealth that was already in the economy, but by creating wealth that was not there before. That's the kind of key thing. So if the total amount of wealth can go up under certain conditions, Somebody can get rich but not cause anyone else to be poor. In fact, they can actually cause other people to be well off as well. And so that really changes your whole understanding of inequality if you realize that under certain conditions in a free market economy, people can actually create wealth that was not there before. So it's not a matter of one person getting rich causing somebody else to get poor. That's just not how it works. You know, you bring up a great point. If there's an entrepreneur willing to invest and take risks and his company grows, well, then he's going to need more workers to work for him and therefore more employees. And as the company succeeds, you know, in order to keep his workers, their wages have to go up. So you make a great point that there's a benefit when people succeed in their business endeavors. Absolutely. I mean, that's the kind of key thing because an entrepreneur is a person who bears the risk for a business enterprise. And actually, not everybody's 
sort of cut out to be an entrepreneur. I mean, a lot of people would prefer to have a wage job where they have a regular salary. They know exactly how much they're going to make every week. It's very stable. They can go home on the weekends and not think about it. If you're an entrepreneur, especially in a startup phase of a business, you're bearing the burden, not only the success of your business, but the payroll for everyone else. That's extremely stressful. In fact, about three out of five new businesses fail in the United States. And so some people are kind of disposed to be able to do that. And when they succeed, they're rewarded for the fruits of their labor, but they've also borne a lot more risk and endured a heck of a lot more stress. And so some people say, well, we want everyone to be entrepreneurs. Well, the truth of the matter is not everybody's cut out to be entrepreneurs. A lot of people are perfectly happy not to be, and I think that's fine. I mean, what we want is a system in which lots of different opportunities and different kinds of jobs are being created so that everyone in all of our kind of varied and diverse glory can actually find different things to do. Yeah, and I think there's a biblical principle there, you know, that Paul talks about a workman is worthy of his wages. Those who invest more time and energy and take risks, uh, work really hard ought to be rewarded accordingly compared to the person that doesn't uh, work as hard and doesn't that's take right. as much risk. I think there's a biblical yeah, principle there. Yeah, that's right. And it's hard to say, um, you know, ahead of time, who is going to be that person. And so that's, that's why you need a market. If you've got a market with the rule of law, you know, and in other words, people can't steal from each other or kill each other or defraud each other then that's going to kind of restrict the sorts of things that you do. And so if you're, a, say, a butcher and you have a butcher shop and you need to make money to pay for your daughter's braces, what are you going to do? Well, you're going to have to think, okay, I want to try to provide my customers meat that they'll freely buy at a quality and a price that they can afford and to do it better than my competitors. And that's the kind of economy you want in which people are competing with each other for customers so that you're focused on the good and the needs of your potential customers. In a socialist system, that's why in the late, in the you know, former Soviet Union, if you went into a grocery store, there was nothing on the shelves and, and, and people didn't care about customers because they got paid the same amount either way. And so their only incentive was to curry favor with the, the government regulators that dictated the terms. They had no reason to serve customers. In the United States, which is much more customer-oriented, you're not going to deal with, with that. And if you've got a, a company that doesn't care anything about its customers, it's probably not going to survive very long. So there's a biblical principle and, you know, understanding human nature. I mean, that's a great motivation there. But what would motivate me to, you know, go study and get a PhD and work, you know, as a nuclear physicist in, in a very uh, risky arena when I can make the same amount of money, you know, being a golf bum that... You know, was my original. I pick on that because that's what I wanted to do. I just wanted to be a <laughs> yeah. golf instructor. And if I can make the same money as a nuclear physicist, well, why would I want to go through all those years of study and go all the arduous schooling and work that kind of high risk job when I when I can make the same amount of money being a golf bum? And so it lessens the motivation. And that's what I see was happening in these communist countries. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in some ways. The first principle of economics is that incentives matter. In other words, the kinds of incentives that are set up, if something's encouraged, you're going to get more of it. If it's discouraged, you're going to get less of it. And so in a system in which, you know, you're actually, you can make more, you can actually succeed economically if you figure out a service or a good that you could provide for people and you can do it better than anybody else, you're going to get rewarded for that. And so the incentives channel you into the direction of serving your fellow human beings. Other economic systems don't do that. You are not oriented toward other people. And so that's the sort of irony is that uh, we're often told that free enterprise 
is all about greed. Well, the reality is that we're a fallen race, and so there's going to be greed in any economic system. That exists in every time and place in every culture. There are only some systems in which people are actually channeled into activities that benefit other people and to figuring out, okay, what kind of phone could I produce or what kind of meal could I produce that people would really like? And so that, the, the truth of the matter is in an economic system in which we're free economically, there's private property and the rule of law, that's going to tend to orient us. It's going to incentivize us to actually serve our fellow human beings. And it's very easy to lose sight of that. Yes, you know, and another thing I hear with proponents of socialism is that the best way to help relieve poverty, look, it's going to provide free education, free college tuition, free medical, Mm -hmm. you know, and so that's the more compassionate, better system. Look at all these free things the government will provide and the government will pay for it. Yeah, well, this, this is just an entirely an illusion because, of course, what does it mean to talk about free health care? I mean, doctors have to be paid, right? And hospitals have expenses. They have to pay the electricity and they have to be built. And so the people that build the hospitals have to be paid. So somewhere that money is coming from. It's not actually free. And so when people talk about free health care or free college, what they mean is it's free at the point of service. So in other words, the customer who's getting the service isn't going to have to pay for it. And so that should leave people that are thinking critically to ask the question, okay, so who's paying for it? Somebody's going to have to pay the doctors in the hospital. Somebody's going to have to pay for the medicine. Well, it ends up being a third party. It ends up being, you know, taxpayers in general or something like that. And it's it's very hard to say how exactly that's a just system. I mean, it seems like all things being equal, you want the customer who is receiving the service to be the one who's responsible for paying for it. And so this idea that, you know, you can just say this about anything. We should have free food. We should have free housing, free college, free cars. Well, it's not free. It's still being paid for by someone. It just ends up getting routed through the tax system in which the government confiscates wealth from people that are working and then redistributes it and pays these for these things on behalf of other people. Now, why is it that Somebody, some taxpayer somewhere that doesn't know me should be responsible for paying my medical bills. That just doesn't follow. There's nothing just about that. Now, yeah, I think as Americans, we want to have a way to help people who can't help themselves, people that are desperately poor. But let's talk about that. But let's not pretend that it's going to be free. Somebody's going to have to pay for those things. And so we want a system that actually makes that possible and doesn't actually punish the people who are succeeding economically. So we want a social safety net that generally helps people but without actually sort of killing the golden goose that, that lays the golden eggs. Yeah. Now we're talking a lot about socialism, but there a difference between socialism and communism. Well, this is a complicated subject because communism, you know, if you look at, say, the Soviet Union, the late Soviet Union, we refer to it as a communist system because it tried to put Karl Marx's ideas into practice. But the name of the Soviet Union was USSR. That was the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. And so they understood themselves to be socialists. That's how communist China sees itself as socialist. What's going on there? Well, in Marxist theory, socialism is a sort of temporary stage. And so you start with what they call capitalism and with these industrial centers and these private owners of the means of production, the factories. And then there's a, a revolution in which the people confiscate the means of production and the government owns everything on behalf of the people. That's called socialism. And so in Marxist theory, socialism is that temporary stage when government owns everything. But the communist 
communists didn't, they didn't, uh, that is the people that believed in Marxist theory, they didn't see socialism as the goal. That wasn't the sort of end point that they wanted to get to. That was just a temporary stage on the way to what they called communism. And communism was actually supposed to be this sort of end stage utopia in which the state, as Marx said, would wither away. So there'd be no government, it would wither away, no private property, everyone would have abundance, there'd be more than enough to go around, and people would, you know, as Marx said, in one place they could fish in the mornings and they could read in the afternoons and they could go hunting in the evenings because people would just be sort of free to what they'd want to do and there'd be so much wealth that everybody would be fine. Well, of course, if you look at how this actually worked out in the 20th century, all these attempts at implementing Marxist theory got as a socialist stage. They never got to this communist utopia. And so communism, as Marx pictured it, has never actually existed. We actually have no way of knowing how you could even have a system like this short of the kingdom of God. And so what you end up with is a, a sort of socialist hellscape in which lots and lots of people die, and there's massive poverty and deprivation. It's a result of the fact that Marxist theory, as most economists know, just simply doesn't square with basic economic reality. It was based on this really kind of bad Hegelian philosophy. It had almost nothing to do with Marxist study of the economics of the situation. In fact, he didn't study what was actually happening in the economies at the time that he wrote the Communist Manifesto in 1848. Well, Jay, uh, we've been talking a lot about socialism here, and it doesn't seem compatible with the Christian worldview. Is that correct? Yeah, that's how I would put it. I mean, I wouldn't say that if you read the Bible, you, there's sort of a single economic theory that comes out of the Bible. I mean, obviously, a lot of these, these categories are modern terms and modern categories. Nevertheless, if you look in Scripture, there are a few things that are taken for granted everywhere. One is the right to private property. And in fact, two of the Ten Commandments presuppose the right to private property. To say, thou shalt not steal, that implies that people have a right to certain things. They have possessions that you shouldn't take from them unjustly. And thou shalt not covet. In other words, you shouldn't covet your, your neighbor's stuff. That, again, it implies that there are certain things that people can rightly have that you shouldn't be wanting to have for yourself. If you look at the Old Testament, even in the, in the book of Genesis, there's an entire chapter in the 50 chapters of Genesis that's dedicated to Abraham negotiating a deal to buy land where he can bury Sarah, his deceased wife. If you look in that chapter in Genesis, you get the, all the details of a sort of ancient real estate deal. It's absolutely amazing. And so basic ideas of private property are embedded in Scripture, and so I think that's a kind of non-negotiable for Christians, is you want an economic system and a political system that respects the right to private property. And then if you look at, at the first chapter of Genesis, it describes human beings as being made in the image of God. God made us in His image, so the created God creates beings in His image, and then He commands them to be fruitful and multiply. So you can ask yourself, Okay, what economic system is best at allowing us to be fruitful and multiply? What systems are best capable of allowing us to actually realize our creative capacities to, to be ingenious, to create wealth that wasn't there before? When you ask that question, I think you say, well, it's really, it's free enterprise of all the life alternatives, the system that has private property and limited government, rule of law, and economic freedom. That's the system that's best at allowing us to use our God-given potential and potential as creatures made in the image of God to create wealth. And so that's how I would put it. It's not that you read the Bible, you absolutely have to believe in free enterprise, but socialism, I think, is off the table because it denies the right to private property. And once you've gotten rid of socialism, then you just have a few limited options, and I think free enterprise comes out on top. 
Yeah, I would agree, you know. But one of the warnings that many national leaders have given us of free countries is that a free market capitalist system only works if there is a good and moral people. And, you know, if capitalism can be exploited, I mean, if everyone's cooking the books and mm -hmm. uh, I'm selling products and saying this program can do this when it really couldn't, I'm being dishonest and I'm exploiting my workers, then capitalism is going to collapse as government needs to be more and more involved. And so a free market system works best, like you said, but there's got to be, you know, a good and moral people there. That's exactly right. You notice several times I've mentioned this idea of a rule of law because you don't, you can't have a free market. Right. You can't have an economic system with anarchy. You know, where if everybody does whatever they want to do, that's the law of the jungle. That's not a free market. And in those situations, the the strong prey on and ultimately enslave the weak. And so you really don't have economic freedom. And so you need both a functioning government that can enforce the rule of law, but then you also need a vibrant civil society, in other words, where individuals and communities have the rule of law that's enforced on their own hearts so that they actually act virtuously and honestly. I mean, it's sort of just common sense. If you think about it, it's going to be much better. It's much easier to have trade and to have stores and to be able to sell things if most people don't steal, whereas if almost everyone will steal if given the chance. Companies have to spend a whole lot of time on security and monitoring things that you're not going to enjoy economic freedom long term. And so the way I and many other people put it is that what you want is both a free and virtuous society. You can't have freedom for long unless a populace is actually self-restrained when they're moral. You know, the British statesman Lord Acton in the 19th century, he said, Liberty is the delicate fruit of a mature civilization. In other words, you can't have liberty, you can't really have freedom for culture as a whole unless you have self-restraint, unless a culture has virtue. And that's absolutely crucial to the long-term success and, and health of a free enterprise system. Yes, and, and you know, just in a few minutes we have remaining here, how does a culture, you know, how do we develop a good and moral, virtuous culture? We see that we are trying to establish democracies in other countries and mm -hmm. they don't have that, you know, Judeo-Christian heritage like we do. And, and they are just struggling, you know, in many of these countries I'm going to, and it looks like they're going to go back to some kind of dictatorship or something. How do yeah. we, very quickly, I know it's a huge answer, develop a good <laughs> and virtuous kind of culture? Well, you need private institutions. You need, uh, more than anything, you need vibrant churches and you need vibrant families. And some countries have vibrant families and family life, but they don't have strong churches and religious faith. I mean, the truth of the matter is there are certain religious and theological ideas that are conducive to this, and then some that aren't. If you think the world's created by a just and rational God and we can learn things about the world, that's going to have implications for your laws and society. If you think everything's just the result of nature gods fighting it out amongst themselves, well, that's going to also have implications for an economy. And so there really is a kind of deep connection between the religious beliefs that a culture and a society has and the kind of politics and economy that they develop. And so that's ironically, in many cases, really vibrant missionary work and evangelism are uh, maybe the best thing that can happen to a country economically long term. Yes. And I think uh, one of the things that Marx made a mistake on, I think he saw that human nature is simply shaped by, you know, the sociology or social factors mm -hmm. around you. And I think that's one of the flaws of the system, wouldn't you say? 
Absolutely. I mean, this idea that we're just ultimately determined by our material conditions and by our environment, that's one of the key flaws and really an anti-Christian idea at the heart of Marxist theory, as opposed to individuals with our own value and dignity and rights as individuals made in the image of God. And so socialism always treats the individual as sort of subordinate to the state and to the machine, and that's what ends up happening to individuals in socialist systems. They get ground under the, the machine, unfortunately. Well, you've been listening to our interview with Dr. Jay Richards. Of course, uh, we could have just continued on for many more hours discussing these fascinating issues. But you want to read up on this issue. He's written a great book on it, Money, Greed, and God. A fantastic, award-winning book. And Jay, if people want more information on you or other material to read that we were talking about, where can they go? Yeah, absolutely. I encourage listeners to check out the website that I run. It's called The Stream at stream.org, and we cover these issues and all sorts of political and economic issues from a Christian perspective every day. That's stream.org. Stream.org. You'll be listening to our interview with Dr. Jay Richards. And so, Jay, thanks for being with us here on Evidence and Answers. Great to be with you. We've run out of time. Thank you so much for joining us here on Evidence and Answers radio broadcast. We hope you enjoyed Pat's show today. If you would like Pat to speak at your church, Bible study, or perhaps hold a conference, give him a call at 483-0586, or you may contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. To keep broadcasts like Pat's on the air, we rely on generous support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate, head on over to our homepage. You'll find we have a wide variety of resources available to you. Everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, including articles and additional audio for you to listen to or download. Be sure to share our website with those around you. Evidence and Answers is grateful for our key sponsor, Highland Capital Management, providing investors with alternative investment solutions. To learn more, Visit them online at hcmlp.com. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucran. Hey, 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 hey.